a beautiful view, Mr. Burgundy. I know. I love this city. It's a, it's a fact. It's the greatest city in the history of mankind. <laughs> <laughs> Discovered by the Germans in 1904, they named it San Diego, which of course in German means a whale's vagina. Hmm. No, there's no way that's correct. Welcome to Narratively Speaking, the podcast that explores the power of story in all its forms, its role in society, and how it helps to shape the ideas we think we believe in. I'm your work in progress host, Harv, and I just came from getting a haircut. Um, I went to uh, one of the African barbers here in Footscray, where I live, and uh, the haircut was going pretty well, uh, or so I thought, until I noticed the barber started making those uh, zigzaggy patterns in my hair with the clippers, you know, and he never asked me if that was the style that I wanted or if I would even be interested in it. He just kind of went ahead and did it. So um, I'm going to sue him. I'm suing him for making me look like I'm trying to appear younger and cooler than I actually am. And, uh, you know, the court date is set for 2025, uh, my lawyer is confident will win, and you already know this story isn't true, right? But the question is, how do you know? If you think about it, it's obvious that that story is not true because it's utterly ridiculous. But how do we determine what's ridiculous and what's realistic? And it may sound like a fairly straightforward question with a very simple answer, but I'm not so sure that's the case. So today I thought we could spend some time thinking about how stories reveal truth. And in order to do that, I think we need to start with whether or not we're actually capable of detecting what's true and what's not. So we all have a bullshit detector, right? And I bet yours is pretty pretty finely honed. Mine is, mine is. No one gets away with lying to me. No, sir. Nope. Uh, I can tell a mile away when someone's telling me porky pies. And I know this because, well, I mean, I guess technically if someone was lying to me and I didn't detect it, uh, I wouldn't know, but I am still supremely confident. Why wouldn't I be? I mean, I get through life and I don't have people double-crossing me every 10 minutes. That must be because of my innate talent to sniff out a lie, right? Oh, you too? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, you and me, we, we both have good bullshit detectors then. But does science bear this out? Uh, unfortunately, when you do a little bit of research on this topic, you'll find that when it has been studied, it's been pretty much proven that human beings are terrible at detecting lies. And I find this a little personally disappointing. And I still try and justify it in my head and say, well, yeah, that most people, most people, yeah. But 
not me. I'm, I'm different. But am I really different? Am I really a special, unique snowflake when it comes to lie detection? Chances are that that's just a story I tell myself. And strangely enough, if I have a strong bullshit detector, then I probably need to acknowledge that story ain't so true either, right? So people are not very good at detecting lies. Researchers have found that in studies where they ask people to differentiate between who's telling the truth and who's lying by watching videos, people only get 54% correct. And if you think about it, if you just flip the coin, you'd expect to get 50% correct. People do very poorly at detecting deception, largely because they rely on inaccurate stereotypes about how liars behave. Many of those stereotypes are based on misguided beliefs around body language, that if a person is lying, that they're likely to exhibit deception through body language. And the research just has not supported that. I actually had a bit of experience with this very recently, and I'm going to risk that someone from my work will hear this, but so be it. So I had a pretty hard week and I was allocated to too many projects. I think it was five at one point. And usually we do one project at a time. Sometimes it's a slight overlap, but not too much. So I was very overworked and I ended up working 19 days in a row without a break, weekends and everything. And they were long days too, especially towards the end, you know, 15, 16 hour days up to late, three hours sleep, straight back to work. And after all of that, I had a bit of a meltdown, I must say. You know, not a complete meltdown, but I just felt that I'd been hard done by and that I needed to make some noise to make sure the higher-ups understood what I'd been through. And I'd tried direct communication, so I kind of acted it out instead, and it certainly got their attention. And after all of that had sort of calmed down, and it was the following day, and I finally got to speak to my boss. I had to sit there and listen to him explain to me that my health and well-being are his primary concern and that all he's trying to do is help me. And I had to decide whether or not I believed him. And it was a funny thing that went around in my head because I knew to some extent that what he was saying was genuine. Of course, he's a good guy. He's not an animal. So it's safe to assume that he has human emotions and genuinely cares about others. But at the same time, I knew his commercial and, and selfish interests aren't really for my health and well-being other than to keep me fit enough to work and earn money for the company. So I kept turning our conversation over in my head and I realized I so desperately wanted to believe that it was true. Uh, that I just basically did. And that was the only motivation. There was nothing that I could do or point to that would indicate to me whether or not he was being completely genuine or whether he would get off the phone and high five his business partner and laugh at me afterwards. I, I really don't know. There's no way to know that because humans are bad at lie detection. And it got me thinking about truth and falsehood and why we care so much about being lied to or people being ingenuine or inauthentic. It seems like one of the core fascinations and almost obsessions for the average human being 
And it's something that if you really break it down, doesn't really have massive consequences to our survival. I mean, sure, maybe someone could tell you, hey, that plant is safe to eat, and then you eat it and you die. Um, but in modern society, there's so many sources of information that that kind of thing can't really happen anymore. So perhaps it's an instinct that's a little less relevant than it used to be. But at the same time, think about how angry you get if you have uh, a spouse or a good friend lie to you. You know, that visceral emotion. And you always hear the cliche in movies and, uh, you know, drama TV shows or whatever that it's not the fact that you did the thing that you did, it was the lying that hurts the most. And that's actually true. It rings true. When someone is dishonest to you, it's the betrayal, the lie that really hurts. But still, there's one thing that I feel like we are good at, and it's not detecting when a person is lying by noticing their physical features and body language. It's about noticing when elements of a story are out of place. We're good at noticing exceptions. If you get in a car and the driver has a bright pink cap with bunny ears on it, you're going to notice that. If he's wearing a regular cap with a baseball team on it, you wouldn't even pay attention to that. And it's the same with story. When we wrap a story around an idea, somehow we're able to divine the truth. And this is something that seems to happen pretty much automatically. Information is nothing tangible. It's typically understood as a property of the arrangement of particles. What does this mean? Imagine a bunch of carbon atoms. Arrange them in a certain way and you get coal. Arrange them in a different way and you get a diamond. The atoms are the same. What changes is the information. If we make this more complex and add in a few more atoms, we get a banana. Change the arrangement of the atoms and we get a squirrel. The basic building blocks of everything in the universe are the same and don't care if they're part of a bird or a rock or a cup of coffee. Without information, everything in the universe would be the same. According to the theory of quantum mechanics, information is indestructible. If you could somehow measure every single atom and particle and wave of radiation in the universe, you could see and track every bit of information there is. Hypothetically, you could see the entire history of the universe right back to the Big Bang. But wait, hold up, hold up, hold up for a second. Why is this YouTube video talking about information in a similar way to how science talks about energy? It's indestructible, it never dies, just changes form. Did he just substitute the word by mistake? Maybe he did a wayward find and replace in his Word document when he was writing his script? Or is there something in science that conflates the two somehow? Because given that we've been floating this somewhat speculative theory that story is the meaning of life, if information is energy, as is matter, then doesn't that indicate we're kind of on the right track? And is it possible that science actually agrees with this? Because isn't story just an arrangement 
of information. Couldn't you argue that the elements of a story being arranged in a kind of perfect symphony is a similar concept to particles or atoms being arranged to create a particular type of organism or object? There's something to it. I don't know exactly what it is, but perhaps there are some scientists out there crazy enough to be looking into this. And then I came across Vladko Vedral. You can only be speculative at, at, at this stage. And I think none of us really have the ultimate answer. Where does all this stuff around us come from? But I think information is a far better concept than any other. Because whatever else you suggest in physics, you can always say, but where does that come from? How come we have these particles? How come we have these forces? Whereas I think information can almost bootstrap itself out of this, you know, it's, it's something that philosophers call an infinite regression. You know, you give me an explanation, but I can always say, but where does that come from? And we can always, you know, we can, we, we, we never seem to be able to end this list of questions. But I think information is a concept actually that's the only one I know of, which is kind of capable almost of explaining itself. So Vlatko believes that Information is the fundamental stuff of the universe. That it doesn't start with matter, doesn't start with energy, doesn't start with consciousness. That it actually just starts with information. And everything else arises from that. And the way he describes it, when you use that as your fundamental building block of knowledge to understand the universe, everything starts to make sense because information is found on every level. It's at the subatomic level in DNA and the arrangement of particles. It's in the social level of consciousness, the way we interact with each other, the way we pass information, the way we tell stories. And I do hope you look into this guy. He's got a lot of interesting things to say, and he's not afraid to go out on a limb, but he's not a completely unqualified nutter either. He's a quantum physicist at a little institution we like to call Oxford, and it's actually the research into the quantum realm and quantum mechanics that has led him to this relatively controversial conclusion. And perhaps it's uh, a little bit arrogant or something, but I can't help drawing parallels to the topic of this podcast because information is so intrinsic to story and vice versa that you can almost think of them as the same thing. And if you listen to Latko talk and you just substitute the word information with story, everything he says seems to make sense. And it sounds a little bit like the way I tend to rabbit on during this podcast. Difference being, he's coming from a position of education and knowledge as opposed to me, who's just kind of making stuff up on the fly. But I have always grounded this in a discipline that I am expert in, which is information systems, uh, data analytics, and IT in general where you can see parallels in how data functions and how story functions and how the accumulation of knowledge 
seems to be a driving force of the universe. I mean, you've just got to take one look at, uh, you know, uh, all of this big brother nonsense that goes on, the, the collection of data through Facebook and Google. This stuff has been done almost against the rule of law. I mean, I say almost. It's certainly against any ethical boundaries uh, around privacy and so on. Facebook can take all the data that you submit and combine it with data from other users and outside information to construct a profile of you. Facebook uses nearly 100 different data points to classify your interests and activities. This would include basic stuff like your age and gender, but also more complicated information like whether you own a motorcycle or you recently went on vacation or whether you're a gadget geek. Researchers have found that by using signals such as your likes and interactions, Facebook could tell if you were in a relationship or going through a breakup. Facebook doesn't just know who you are, where you are, and what you buy. It also can be used to figure out what kinds of things you might do in the future to predict life outcomes, like whether you will be addicted to substances, whether you will switch political parties, whether you're physically healthy or physically unhealthy. These are all part of the information that advertisers love to know because it helps them better target users. And what's driving the collection of this data? I don't know, you could say capitalism, you could say the ability to control the population. It really depends on how conspiratorial your worldview is. But no matter what it is, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. They're collecting data that they can't even process at this point to do things that are really not that important. I mean, targeting advertising is nice, but we've got along pretty well without it for a few generations. For the cost of giving up the amount of privacy we need to, or the amount of privacy they need to take from us to generate the data, for such a small thing, it just doesn't quite make sense to do it. But if the accumulation of knowledge, understanding of data, of information, is the purpose of the universe, then everything else is really just an excuse. And it does seem to make more sense. And Likewise, our passion for truth seems to come into focus and make more sense too. Because if information is akin to energy, and energy is akin to matter, and all of these things are just arrangements of various items, then you can open up explanations for things that we've talked about before, like synchronicity or vibrational resonance. I mean, how is it that magnetism arranged on a platter can become a movie that tells a full and rich and comprehensible story to human consciousness if those things are not all somehow related. So perhaps when we're given information that's false, the emotional reaction that we have to that is actually the reaction of the universe. Because the universe wants true information to persist and propagate. Because knowledge is just the awareness of true information. And in the same way that musical notes that are out of harmony with each other sound horrible to our ear, when our internal stories are out of alignment with the world around us, we feel discordant with our own reality. 
And if you think about the number of mistruths, misconceptions, disinformation, and all sorts of things that are distributed through the mainstream media and through all sorts of channels that we're bombarded with every day, it's no wonder that we have an epidemic of poor mental health and general malcontent with the state of the world. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about uh, social media and how it's making teens depressed, uh, everybody depressed. And that's being blamed, I guess, primarily on the idea that you're comparing your real life with a false life that's being projected by other people through social media. And yeah, that makes sense. It's probably a large part of the problem. But what if the very falseness of the data on Facebook and Instagram is part of the problem as well? The fact that we've got this large database of information that is inherently untrue. Could the universe be responding to that falseness by creating this depression and anxiety in? humans that interact with it, something to think about. But I think it's safe to say that we're all operating on one true reality. So our barometer for truth is our attempt to find a path to understanding that reality in a shared way. And that first video that I played, which talked about information as if it was energy, that's from a video about black holes and Stephen Hawking's theory uh, of the black hole information paradox. The idea being that black holes suck up all matter and light and yes, even information. In fact, they're one of the most information dense entities in the universe. And that by doing so, when they eventually and inevitably collapse, they may just end up deleting all information from the universe, which kind of blew my mind because in following this theory of the universe being an information collection machine, filtered through story, of course, I've often wondered when and how the data generated by our shared experience is collected and what happens when enough data has been generated to call the experiment complete. Well, collapsing black holes, sucking up all the information in the world certainly sounds like it could fit the bill. It's all pretty mind-bending stuff, and I'm not sure if I have the intellect or capacity to wrap my head around it. Maybe 100 episodes from now, we can try to make sense of that. But for now, it's just going to need to be an idea that we float into the ether. It sounds in many ways that um, the concept of information that you're describing as the catch-all for, well, what creates these laws, yes. other people would conflate with faith. Yes. How, how are you not conflating this concept of, of the spontaneous generation of information at the beginning of the universe with a faith, a, a god? Or a yes, deity. you are right that that in in physics um, we frequently encounter this uh, this question of the ultimate origin, and it sounds as though it's the same question that people in various religions have also raised. And and I think the the common answer you encounter then is that th there was some kind of original uh, creator of all this information. I think again the trouble 
the trouble for us in physics is that this really doesn't solve anything in the sense that as a physicist then you would also like to be able to understand that being itself and you would maybe like to explain the origin of, of, of God uh, itself and then you encounter the same infinite regression you know so who created the original God and so on and I think that's why um, it seems as though you're postulating something far more complex than what you're trying to explain, which is the universe. But at the same time, though, you posit in the book that the universe is information, yes. that, that, we, that we are information. Yes. How is humanity information? Can you break that down for me? I think, again, this is not, uh, this is not fully understood. Again, you would have people who would say it's all in the genome. So you, you, you can almost go into the other extreme and say, well, you know, the genetic material is fine and determines something, but the key thing is actually the social aspect of it. But I think what's interesting is that if you look at the way in which meaningful information arises, then, then it's the same method that if you look at the underlying dynamics, if you say, how would I mathematically describe the whole thing, surprisingly you get to the same piece of mathematics, actually, and that's amazing, I think. We've gone from a simple question about truth to the very nature of the universe, but what does it all mean? How does this apply to our everyday experiences on this plane we call reality? Well, story is information, and story done right is information arranged perfectly. It could be represented using different encodings, schemes and materials or media. Story can be notes arranged on a staff. It can be words on a page. It can be images on a screen or actors on a stage. Holy shit, did that rhyme? That rhymed. This is like a Dr. Seuss book. And any of these things can be encoded as ones and zeros and digitized onto a computer reduced to pure information, as it were, almost akin to what happens to information as it's sucked into a black hole at the edges of the universe. And if you think of humanity, or even all of planet Earth, as an organism comprised of information, then each individual is a different iteration of the overall organism's story. So like individual universes in an infinite multiverse, yes, like in the Marvel movies, each one of us provides an interpretation of reality, of truth, filtered through our own unique experience, knowledge, and sensibilities. So there's no reason to believe that one individual's story is less significant than another because in information, all data points are equally valid and informative because information filtered through story reveals truth. And if there's anything that makes sense of the universe existing at all, it's the search for truth. That's why we get angry when we're given false information because somewhere deep down, we all know the search for truth, for real, truthful information is the purpose behind this strange, wonderful, and beautiful experiment that we call reality. So each story, true or false, or somewhere in between, 
is important. The only way to make your story less significant is to leave it untold.